Please turn me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. Now, I mean this when I say this. My hope last week is that we would get through verse 18 today, but that's not happening. I quickly realized that wouldn't be the case as I started looking at this. So, for today, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the amazing and eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul commended these believers in numerous ways. He defended himself and his ministry. He expressed his deep love and concern for these Christians in Thessalonica. He greatly encouraged them, and then Paul prayed for them. In chapter 4, Paul began to practically show the Thessalonian Christians how they are to live out their faith and how they are to grow in their sanctification, and it was all quite convicting. But it is our call to keep growing in the faith, right? To keep fighting sin, and to keep pursuing the things that honor and glorify God. Yeah, that's our call. Why? Because love for Christ compels us forward. Paul now seems to be answering a couple of questions that the Thessalonians had for him. And the first one was this. What about brotherly love, which Paul answered in our previous passage? Let's look at the next question, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Now here as we look at this, we see another question that must have been weighing heavily on the hearts of the Thessalonian believers. And the question is this, what about those who have fallen asleep? It's a good question. It's a very good question. Now remember, The Thessalonian Christians had clearly been expecting the return of Jesus before they died. And they really had a moment-by-moment expectation that Christ was going to return very, very soon, within days, or at most within weeks. And they never entertained the thought that death would happen to them. No way. No, Jesus would come back before that came. But guess what? Since Paul's departure... One or more of the Thessalonian Christians had indeed died. And the question is, what about them? I mean, this isn't how we expected the end to come. So Paul, what about those who have fallen asleep? No, note the term fallen asleep literally refers to normal sleep. However, it's also used figuratively to refer to those who have died as Christians. And context dictates that. And that's what this is clearly referring to here to death. Note that there's a false teaching known as soul sleep that says that the souls of the dead are in a state of unconscious existence. They then claim that after a long period of time, God will awaken their souls once again. That said, that clearly is not what the Bible teaches. No. In the Bible, sleep, when in the context of death, only applies to the body and never to the soul. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul wrote that he preferred rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. And then in Philippians 1.23, he expressed his desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. So clearly, the souls of believers who die, 
They go consciously into the presence of the Lord. And the term fallen asleep is just another word to describe physical death, but not soul sleep, because again, the soul never sleeps. Note also this, and this is just a side note that I find very interesting and uh, utterly incredible. When is a soul created? When is a soul created? We believe that the Bible teaches that a soul is created at conception. And while God is a creator of every soul, God uses the secondary means of a man and woman coming together at conception to create that eternal soul. And that is a mind-blowing truth, an eternal soul. That's one of the reasons why the Bible stresses that sex is reserved only for marriage, That's uh, one of the reasons why we oppose abortion, and that's why we firmly believe that human life begins at conception, because that's when the eternal soul is created. Now think about that. God, through the parents, creates an eternal soul at conception. That's also why we believe that every uh, uh, aborted child's soul, every stillborn child's soul, every baby that died in the womb before birth, that soul is indeed with the Lord in eternal glory because every soul that's created lives forever. And we believe that babies that die, they go to be with God in glory forever when they die. And even though we're all born into sin, look, God holds us accountable for the sins that we knowingly and willingly commit against Him. That's why David was confident that he'd see his baby that died again. As David said in 2 Samuel 12, 23, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. So David knew that he would see his child again in glory. So souls are created by God through the parents at conception. That's a mind-blowing thought. And every soul goes on and lives forever, either in heaven or in hell. And they don't sleep, even though the physical body does sleep, even though the physical body does die. And look, unless we're around when the event described in verses 15 through 18, which we're not going to get to this week, the rapture and the catching up together in the clouds, unless that happens when we're, uh, when we are here, we too are going to fall asleep, right? We too are going to physically die just like the rest of the Thessalonian believers died. And that's the reality for everyone except for Enoch, Elijah, and those around when Christ returns. Death. It's a bitter reality, isn't it? Anybody? It's bitter. A bitter reality. Because of sin, we live in a dying world. As one said, Earth is a vast graveyard, and he's right, and and it's coming for all of us. Spurgeon said this about death. How brief is the distance between life and death. Our pilgrimage on earth is but a journey to the grave. The pulse that preserves our being beats our death march. He's right, right. He says, today we see our friends in health. Tomorrow we hear of their decease. We clasped the hand of the strong man, but yesterday, but today we closed his eyes. Death is the servant who rides behind the chariot of life. You see life and death is close behind it. And that, sadly, is our reality. Life is short, time flies, and soon we will be gone. Look, the average human on earth lives to be about 80. That's about 960 months, about 
29,000 days or about 697,000 hours. Well, over a third of those years, days, and hours are spent sleeping. In addition, seven years will be spent trying to get to sleep. Anybody relate to that one? (laughs) On average, you'll spend just over 13 years of your life at work. Four and a half years of life will be spent eating On average, you'll spend nearly eight and a half years watching TV, and people will spend over three years on social media. That number's growing way more every day. On average, you'll spend five years waiting in lines with roughly six months sitting at stoplights. You'll spend over a year in the restroom. You'll spend a year looking for misplaced objects. On and on and on it goes. And suddenly, one day, you're going to turn around, and it will be over. Time will run out. Just like that for us and for our loved ones. And again, it's bitter. It's bitter. One said, all the world is a hospital and every person is a terminal patient. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the moment you come into this world, you're beginning to go out of it. He's right. And it's coming for you. It's coming for me. So again, what about those who die? Paul gives five truths for the Thessalonians and for us to take to heart as we contemplate these things. First, Paul says that we don't need to be ignorant regarding this, and that's a good thing. The word ignorant means to not have information about something, to not know about something, to be unaware of something. And here, Paul says that they don't have to be uninformed, unknowing, unaware, or ignorant about those who have died in Christ, and also about what will happen to those people regarding the catching up of believers isn't it good to know that we can know that's good to know we can know what's going to happen to us when we die we don't have to wonder we don't have to guess no we can know how well because god tells us and god really does know these things he's not guessing at these things see our sole authority and rule for life is the word of god god's word is truth And the wise soul is the one who believes that and who adheres to that truth. My opinion doesn't matter. And your opinion doesn't matter. God's truth is what matters. See, many people have many different opinions about what they think is going to happen to them after they die. But those are only opinions. But guess what? God knows, right? God created us. God created everything else. God is the essence and embodiment of truth. God's word is truth. And what he says about these things and about everything else is truth. It is the reality. It is what will indeed happen. And Paul's going to expound on this, on what will happen to those who die for the Thessalonians and for us in the verses that follow. We're not going to get to that this week. Okay. Next week, maybe. Let me ask you this. Are your beliefs and lifestyle in accord with the word of God? That's, that's an important question. See, we are to believe what God tells us in his word. And we are to then adhere to that truth more and more and more as children of God. And when that happens, you'll find much more happiness and you'll find much more joy in your life because joy comes when God's children walk in truth and obey his word and that's true that's true we know this some people think that obeying god is a a burden but they are dead wrong about that no obeying god radically is the joy of the believer and we get our greatest pleasure when we are bringing pleasure to the one that we love the most amazing how that works but it's true that's how it works so 
We don't have to be ignorant about these issues because God's word addresses these issues. And then second, we don't need to sorrow like others do. Not as Christians we don't, right? Not in Christ. Do we sorrow? Yes, we sorrow. Of course we sorrow. However, we don't sorrow like those who don't have the hope of the Lord. The word sorrow means to grieve, to feel pain, either in the body or in the mind, and to be in distress. The word speaks of a weight, a burden, a heaviness of the soul. So while we in Christ grieve, while we feel sorrow, while we feel heaviness, while we feel pain when a loved one dies, of course, it's not the same weight as those without the hope of the Lord, right? Our grief is different. Our grief is undergirded with the truth of God that fills us with hope. Our grief is always filtered through the fact that we are saved, that heaven is waiting, and that a glorious future will soon be our reality. It's much different. And for Christians that we grieve for, right? One said what? Can there be rejoicing and heaviness in the same heart at the same time? Oh, yes. Our experience has taught us that we can be at the same moment in heaviness of heart and yet rejoicing in the Lord. And that's right. And and that changes how we grieve. He changes how we grieve. Yeah, the furnace is hot. However, God is with us. And this too shall pass. And the best really is yet to come for those of us in Christ. So we don't sorrow like others who don't know the Lord. Ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Oh, what a difference between the person who dies with Christ and the person who dies without Christ. Oh, what a difference between the sorrow we have for the Christian who dies versus the sorrow we have for the non-Christian who dies. Let me just read a few testimonies of some people who died without the Lord. I quote, An aged and rebellious infidel infidel died a few years ago. Whilst he lay sick, he refused any Christian the privilege of talking with him on religious subjects. Shortly before he died, he started suddenly up in his bed screaming, The devils are come! The devils are come! Keep them off of me! After that, he fell into a swoon. Just before he died, he seemed to summon all his strength, rose up in his bed and shouted, shouted, hell and damnation, hell and damnation. And then he fell back, choked, strangled, and died. That is horrible, but that is not how Christians die. Burdened, heavy, and weighed down with condemnation and guilt, that is not how Christians die. Here's another. The writer says, I got to know Mrs. Jones in the winter of 1886. I'd often urged her to surrender to Christ in repentant faith while she was in good health, but she refused. I called to see her during her last sickness and found her in a most distressing state of mind. She recognized me when I came in and was loath to let me leave long enough to bring my wife, who was only three quarters of a mile away, saying, devils are in my room, ready to drag my soul down to hell. She'd begin in a low, measured tone and say, it must be done, it must be done, continuing to repeat the same with increasing force and higher pitch of voice until she would end with a piercing scream, it must be done. Her husband asked her, what must be done? She answered, our hearts must be made right. And again, she would entreat me to take her away, affirming she could see devils all around her. She would say, see them laugh at me. 
This would throw her into a fit of dread, causing her to start from her bed. But when I tried to get her to look to Jesus for help, she said, it's no use, it's too late. What a lie. What a lie. It's, it's never too late for us. Only after death is it too late. The writer continues, I trust I shall never be called upon again to witness such a heart-rending deathbed scene as hers. She died in great distress, refusing to surrender to the Lord. Christians don't die like that. Burdened heavy and weighed down with condemnation and guilt. Christians don't die like that. Adoniram Judson, the great missionary to Burma, Myanmar, in the early 1800s, he gave this testimony about his life before he was saved. He said this. He had godly parents, but he himself was a rebel, and he was being lured away from the Lord and and, and from the faith by a fellow student named Jacob Eames, who was a deist. Deists deny the Trinity, the inspiration of the Bible, the deity of Christ, miracles, and any supernatural act of redemption uh, or salvation. It's not good. Not good at all. By the time uh, Judson's college career was done, he had no Christian faith whatsoever. On his 20th birthday, he broke his parents' heart with his announcement that he had no faith whatsoever, that he wanted to write for the theater and go to New York, which he did. Six days later, on a horse, his father gave him as a part of his inheritance, kind of like the prodigal son. A bit later, Judson stayed in a small village inn where he had never been before. The innkeeper apologized that his sleep might be interrupted because there was a man who was critically ill in the room next to him. Through the night, Judson heard people coming and going, along with low voices, groans, moans, and gasps. See, the guy in the next room with just a curtain blocking them, he was dying. And he was in serious distress, crying, wailing, weeping. This guy was hopeless. This made Judson wonder about himself and about his own death, but he felt foolish for all those thoughts because good deists weren't supposed to have those kinds of struggles. When he was leaving the next morning, he asked if the man next door was better. The innkeeper replied, he's dead. Do you know who he was? Judson asked. Oh yeah, his name was Eames. Jacob Eames. It's a true story. Judson's deist friend died in the next room. And he didn't even know that it was his friend who was dying. And that death was agonizing, dreadful, fearful, horrible. In that moment, the joy and excitement of Judson's travels evaporated along with his dreams of fame and glory. What would it matter achieving everything in the world if hell came and snatched him away one day just as it had done to Jacob Eames? How would worldly success save him from terrors beyond the grave? A cold hand gripped Adoniram's heart as he pondered his future. One said, the ground shifted beneath his feet and he could feel himself slipping, sliding into the abyss. At that moment, Adoniram was sure of one thing. He had to go home and ask his father about God. He had to find out what life, death, and eternity was all about. So God used the death of the rebel Jacob Eames to bring Adoniram Judson back to God. Judson didn't want to die like his friend died. 
The death of his friend without the Lord made Judson think about it for himself. And he knew that he didn't want to die that way as those who die without hope, as those who are weighed down uh, with a weight that only Jesus Christ himself can lift. Christians don't die like Jacob Eames. See, our sorrow as Christians and for Christians is very real, yes, but it is different. Paul writes that to the Christians at Thessalonica who had lost loved ones so that they wouldn't grieve like non-believers grieve, but on the contrary, that they would be empowered by this sound doctrine regarding the believer's death. And then that they would comfort one another with the sure hope of future glory to be revealed at Christ's return. See, we have hope. More on that in a second. We know what lies ahead. We are not ignorant. We know that the best for us and for our loved ones in Christ lies ahead, but not so the non-Christian. They have a dead-end grief. Their best is here in this fading and fleeting life, not ahead. How, how horrible is that? Their goodbyes are final. That's devastating. Third, we in Christ, we have hope. And that changes everything. Anybody? Amen. Amen. We don't sorrow as those who have no hope. No, we in Christ, we are filled with hope. What is hope? Hope is defined as a desire for some future good with the expectation of obtaining it. Hope is the opposite of despair. Hebrews 6, 18 and 19 mentions the hope that we have in Christ as an anchor for the soul that is both sure and steadfast. And that's what Christ gives to us as believers. He gives true hope. And our hope as Christians isn't like the world's definition of hope. No, I hope so, which rarely happens. No, no, no. Instead, our hope as Christians is an absolute assurance of future good. It's a confident expectancy it's an unconditional certainty because the god who cannot lie has promised its reality to us as his children one said biblical hope is not a hope so but it is a hope sure and that's absolutely right look the writer of hebrew says that this hope for us in christ is an anchor for the soul and that is some strong imagery See, the main reason you need an anchor is to keep from drifting into things that would destroy you, especially during storms. Our hope in Christ steadies the soul. It steadies us in our walk of faith. See, we won't drift when we cling to Christ our hope. See, He'll steady us on the journey that we are walking. And look, our hope in Christ allows us to patiently endure pain and trials and even death because we know what lies ahead. Even more, our hope in Christ brings us a deep sense of joy. See, with godly hope, we can maintain an optimistic outlook even when things are going wrong. I mean, our life will still have stress, our life will still have tragedy, but the believer whose hope is in the Lord and who has a grasp on God's plan He won't be overcome. No, our hope will carry us through all of that. One said that hope is something as important to us as water is to a fish, as vital as electricity is to a light bulb, and as essential as air is to a jumbo jet. Hope is basic to life. Without that needed spark of hope, we are doomed to a dark, grim 
existence. And he's right, but think about it. How often the word hopeless is seen in suicide notes. And even if it isn't actually written, we can read in between the lines. See, take away our hope and our world is reduced to something between depression and despair. And that's where the world is at today without Christ. They are hopeless even though they try to mask it. And while they do indeed mask it, while they lie to themselves many times, hey, deep down they know the truth. What will happen to me when I die without Christ to save me? What's going to happen to my soul? Hopeless. All is indeed lost without Christ. See? But, but, not us. Praise Him. Not us in Christ, right? We have true hope. We can smile through our tears. We can rejoice even through times of suffering. This isn't the end of the story for us. Praise the Lord for that. No, our hope is in God and He promises great things for us in Christ in the future. We have an anchor Our hope in Christ that is sure and solid and certain and that's what compels us along as we walk this weary pilgrim road even into death. Hey, soon I'll be home. Praise God for our sure hope. What a gift from God to us. But what would life be without Him and the hope that He brings? You know, that's good to reflect on, right? Why? Because when you reflect on how hopeless you were without Christ, man, it just makes you love Him all the more. Anyone? So Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like people who have no hope. I don't want you to grieve like those who have a dead-end hope. The kind of grief that comes to people because there's no contemplation of a future reunion. I don't want you to think that Christians ever say a final goodbye because they don't. Not, not, not with other Christians. How comforting is that? Hey, you never say goodbye to a believer for the last time. As a Christian. Never. There will always be another time. So Paul says, I don't want you to grieve like the hopeless pagans grieve. Oh, their grief is different than ours. Vastly different. They carry with them a terrible sense of finality. No reunion. No future. Never more to touch the hand, to, to hear the sound of a voice. No, finality. Which is a cause for deep despair. Deep hopelessness. But... Christ changes all that for us. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Anyone here excited about some future family reunions in glory? Amen? Right? (laughs) Christ gives that to us. And and Christians take this reality to heart for their loved ones who die in Christ and also for, for ourselves. Listen to some of the final statements of Christians right before they died and compare them with the testimonies I previously read. The chariot has come. I'm ready to step in. How bright the room! How full of angels! Another. The sun is setting! Mine is rising. I go from this bed to a crown. Farewell. Another. Can this be death? Why, it's better than living! Tell everyone I die happy in Jesus. John Bunyan. Weep not for me, but for yourselves. I go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ where I will remain everlastingly happy in a world without end. And then, Adoniram Judson. I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. Anybody? (laughs) I feel so strong in Christ. 
And then he died. One pastor from Texas called out to his mother who was sitting in the room with him. Please, he said, come over here for a minute. As she approached his bed, he said, I want to tell you something, mom. I'm going to beat you to heaven. With a smile, he closed his eyes and went to heaven. One evangelist in the 1800s suffered greatly for many weeks before he died. During his sickness, he requested many of his friends to sing and pray with him. One noted this, he was always cheerful and his face radiant with smiles and bright with the light of God. The last song sung on the day of his home going to glory was the sweet by and by. While singing that wonderful song, the dying man gave his wife a hug and then taking her hand in his, raised them up together and he shouted, victory, triumph, triumph, and then he died. That's what we have in Christ. We have hope. Sound hope, solid hope, sure hope, confident hope in Christ, and Christ changes everything. Yes, death is bitter. Yes, but it's, it's, it's not the end for us in Christ. And we have hope for ourselves and for our loved ones who die in Christ, and we don't sorrow like those without the hope of the Lord. See, and the question is, do you have the hope of the Lord today? Fourth. Jesus died and rose again, verse 14. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And that's key. I mean, you have to believe this truth if you want to have this hope. In 1 Peter 2.24, Peter writes these wonderful words. He himself, Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. I mean, come on. Look what Jesus has done for us. Look. Look what it says. He bore our sins on the tree, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. He suffered so that we who believe could be eternally healed. Do we deserve forgiveness for all our wretched sin against our great and holy God? Do we deserve God's saving grace and God's daily sustaining grace? Do we deserve heaven sinful and imperfect and rebellious as we are? Do we deserve any of those things? No, we don't. But look, we who believe get all of that and more at such a high and costly price. Anybody here a sinner? (laughs) We all sin. Sin separates us from God. It makes us at enmity with holy God. On top of that, Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And as a result, we are all in serious eternal trouble. Doomed. Doomed. Objects of wrath. Hell because of our sin. Now look, in the Old Testament, the slaughter of countless millions of sacrificial animals graphically illustrated the high price for sin. Every sin. When you sinned, you had to kill an animal because the wages of sin is death. And while no animal could ever pay the true penalty for sin, those sacrifices drove home the point that sin results in death and death is required to satisfy the demands of God's law when it's violated. God is utterly holy. Sin is high treason against holy God. And the penalty for our crime is death. Every sin, see, every sin deserves death in the eyes of holy God because sin committed against an eternal and infinite God is worthy of eternal and infinite wages. Now, in the Old Testament, God allowed an animal to die in your place temporarily. But those sacrificial animals only pointed to the one who would pay for sin once and for all. Anybody know his name? Jesus Christ. 
And while those animal sacrifices allowed the sins of God's faithful to be rolled forward, those sins were still waiting to be paid for once and for all in full. And the question is, who would ever be willing and worthy to pay the high and costly price for all that wretched sin? I mean, either you pay the price for your own sin by being punished for that sin in hell, or else someone else has to pay for your sin in your place. But who? Who is worthy and who is able to do that? Only one. Only a perfect sacrifice, only one who knew no sin. So our hero, the only one who was willing and able, Jesus, God the Son, he became a man so you could, he could do for us what we could never have done for ourselves. He was sinless. He was unblemished. He committed no sin even though he was tempted in every way. He was holy, innocent, undefiled, and separated from sinners. And he alone could become that perfect sacrifice and substitute for sin. And so, what we find is this, that on the cross, Jesus became the believer's substitute for sin. That means that the Father treated Jesus as if he were a sinner by charging to his account the sin of everyone who would ever believe, including us today. As believers, our sin that banishes us from God and from heaven, that wretched sin was placed onto Christ He bore our sins on that cross and our sin was then paid for in full by Christ so we wouldn't have to pay for them ourselves in eternity in hell. And because of Christ and the cross, we who believe die to sin and its eternal wages and we live for righteousness. That's an incredible thing. Christ faced our wrath in our place as believers. So we could be forgiven and be lavished with amazing grace instead. Anybody grateful for Christ? Get this, not only does Jesus take our sin, not only is our sin imputed to him, credited to him, paid for in full by him, But in return, his perfect righteousness is imputed, credited, reckoned to us, to our spiritual account. Simply stated, our sins were on Christ and his righteousness is on us. This is the great exchange. This is the ultimate trade-off. I mean, think about it. He was treated as if he were a sinner and he was punished for all our sin, even though he was perfectly holy and pure. And we are treated as if we were righteous, even though we are defiled and depraved and sinful. And because of that, because of Jesus, because you believe in repentant faith and entrust your soul into his his hands by grace through faith. Look, God now looks at you through a Christ lens and he sees perfection. He sees righteousness. He sees someone who is fitted for heaven because of Christ. When we all deserve to go to hell. Good news? (laughs) It's the best news. But it doesn't end there. No, for all, he also rose up from the dead. That's what it says, right? Why is that important? Because the resurrection was a vindication by God that every word that Jesus said and every deed that he performed was proof of his identity as the deliverer and savior for all who would believe. On top of that, the resurrection is a crowning proof, not only of Christ's deity, but it's also the guarantee of our victory and our resurrection from death to life. See, without the resurrection of Christ, we're all doomed, but because he rose from the dead, look, God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. See, the resurrection of Christ is important. And look, many people could verify the resurrection because they had seen it. 
I mean, Jesus walked around after his death for many days, and many people witnessed seeing him alive. And this is so important for Christianity rests on the certainty of Christ's resurrection. Why? Because the bodily resurrection of Christ authenticated his identity as a promised Messiah and Savior. One said, it corroborated the truthfulness of every word he spoke. It vindicated him as the righteous one on whom death and hell could have no hold. It anticipated his ascension and enthronement at God's right hand. It guaranteed our present forgiveness and justification, declaring the effectiveness of Jesus' substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. That's right. The resurrection proves all those things. And think about this. It's possible to see the bones of Muhammad Buddha, Abraham, Joseph Smith, David, and on and on it goes. But it's impossible, impossible to see the bones of Jesus. Why? Because he was raised up from the dead. Jesus, our Messiah, our deliverer, our hope. These are facts. And now the call is to believe. Look, look what Paul says. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So you must believe these truths if you want to be saved and if you want to be filled with the hope that Christ gives. Note that true belief in Christ isn't just intellectual assent, but it's believing on Jesus as revealed in the scriptures, in his person and in his work. Biblical saving faith, see, is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of all my sins and for eternal life with God. It's a personal trust in Jesus to save me from all my sin that condemned me. Saving faith always includes repentance that turns away from the past way of sinful living, and to then following after the Lord, compelled by love to do so. Not perfectly, we'll be perfect in glory. But that's our aim, that's our direction. He is the one that we love. We want to glorify Him now with our fast and fading lives. We all sin, but repentance expresses a sorrow for sin, a battle against sin, and a heart that seeks to honor the Lord in the midst of battling that sin. See, saving faith affects your life. It should, right? And while a person is saved by faith alone, true saving faith will result in a lifestyle of loving obedience to the Lord who saved your soul from eternity in hell. Look what Paul says. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So the fifth truth to take to heart is this, that God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And how good is that? How good is that? What does it mean? It means that just as Christ died and was raised from the dead, good news, those who have died will also be raised up from the dead. See, our physical bodies will rise from the dead since Christ physically rose up from the dead. So it's going to happen for us in Christ. Note that one interesting thing about the word sleep as a metaphor for death is the fact that it's only used in the New Testament for Christians. Why? Because physical death doesn't break the bond between the believing soul and our Savior. Because Christ is never truly separated from those who love Him. No, He is with them in death and He is with them in the life to come. So while physical death kills the body, it doesn't kill the soul. So sleep is a good metaphor for us in Christ when we die. That said, there will be a day in the future when our physical bodies will be raised up and where our soul will be reunited with our transformed physical bodies that are then perfectly fitted 
for eternal glory. In 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, Paul outlines four contrasts between the resurrection body that's coming for us and this. <laughs> I can't wait for the resurrection body. All right, look what he says. So also is the resurrection of the dead. <clears throat> the body is sown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. So look, first, the resurrection body will be imperishable. They will not, and we're going to talk about this more next week, I promise. They will not grow old or wear out, nor will they contract, contact, uh, you won't get sick. (laughs) Second, The natural body is characterized by dishonor. The resurrection body will be marked by glory. Throughout eternity, Christians' immortal bodies will be pure and honorable, perfectly suited, think about this, to please, praise, and fully enjoy the Creator who made them and the Redeemer who restored them, perfectly suited for that forever. Forever. Third, the natural body is sown in weakness, but glorified body is raised in power. It'll therefore be a strength that's sufficient to do all that we desire to do in conformity with the will of God. And finally, Paul contrasts the natural body to the spiritual body. Here, Paul tells us that our new bodies will be entirely submitted to and in perfect harmony with the Holy Spirit. That means that we will have a physical body, yes, that will be able to carry out holy impulses without a moment's distraction or weariness. And therefore, they will be able to fully enjoy the bounties of the new creation God has created for us, His people. Note this. Note that our final state as believers, our final place as believers is the new heaven and the new earth. So it's a physical place that we are going to be at. And we will have physical bodies in that place to glorify God for all eternity. There, we will have direct access to God. There, we will, uh, God will himself live amongst us. That's incredible. That's mind-blowing. And that's no fairy tale. No, that will be as real as the current planet that we now live on, but it will be perfect. It will be made new. And look, all who believe in true saving faith will be there with new, resurrected, physical, perfect bodies. So, again, just as God raised Christ up, look, God will raise us up from the dead with a bodily resurrection. And then look what Paul says. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, good news. You aren't going to miss anything. Even the people who die, they're not going to miss anything. Based on the death of Christ and His perfect work and based on the resurrection of Christ and the Father's will, hey, God's going to bring with Him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So when Christ comes in His glory to gather His people, those who have fallen asleep, guess what? They're going to be there too. So no worries. (laughs) No worries at all. And again, Next week, we'll get to that. Just continue to honor and glorify the Lord until you see Him. We're going to get more into that, but this is good news for us. What's the call? How about this? For us in Christ, don't worry, be happy. (laughs) Right? I mean, happy in the Lord, right? 
The dead believers for whom we mourn, guess what? They're not dead. They live to God. And when the great day comes, God will bring those who have gone before and unite them to those who have been left behind. So it's all good for us who believe alive or dead. It's all good. So surrender to Christ and repent in faith and be saved from the wrath to come. And then after that, be ready to see the Lord by living a growing, sanctified life more and more and more. Fighting sin with passion and fervor and pursuing the glory of God until the great day comes that He comes for us or that we die and we go to be with Him. Until then, may fervent love compel us ever forward. Again, more is a great word for us here. More of Him, more of His glory, more of His pleasure in our fast and fading lives. More until glory. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for Your wonderful word of truth. Thank You for the hope that we have in You. We have real hope. We do not grieve like those who don't have hope. Thank you for the promises of what lay ahead. That because Christ rose again, so too will we who believe rise again. And Lord, may we cling to this hope. May this drive us, compel us forward. May love compel us to glorify you until that great day comes. May we encourage one another. Thank you for your word of truth. Bless us as we go out today. In Jesus' name, amen.